our scripture passage is, is going to be longer than what I normally use. Uh, usually, you know, we'll have a few verses. Uh, I'm going to read a whole chapter simply because, you know, it was one of those places where you get started and you just can't find a spot to bite it into, you know, and uh, because it's all good and it's all tied together. And so I want to draw your attention to Mark chapter 11. We'll start with verse 1, and we will read till we get to the end of that chapter. Now, this is, a, this is a, a passage that we usually would use on what we would call Palm Sunday, and there's a reason for that. You find the reason as you look at this. Palm Sunday is next Sunday, but I just couldn't squeeze everything in, and so we're having a Palm Sunday sermon today, and then we will have a sermon on the cross next Sunday, and then we will have a ser sermon on the resurrection the following Sunday. So we're going to kind of stretch this out just a little bit and savor it a little bit more. And so that's what we're going to do. And uh, we usually think of Palm Sunday as a happy time and a joyous occasion. And whenever we read about it in the gospel accounts, it was. But there was also a very, very serious side to it. And uh, as a matter of fact, some of the strongest words that Jesus ever used were used on this occasion that we we're going to be reading about. So follow along with me. As I read from this, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he'd looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig, fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came to Jerusalem... And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> It's 1894, and a book came out, and it was really a very popular book. I think it was reprinted several times. It was written by a newspaper man in Britain. His name was William Stead. He wrote more than one book. But this particular book was titled, If Christ Came to Chicago. And he starts off by talking about what life was like in Chicago back in the 1890s. The ugliness that went on inside the jails and around town and in people's homes. The question was this, if Christ came to Chicago, what would he see? What would he say? What would he do? Maybe we should ask ourselves, what if Christ came to Henderson, to Russ County, to Mount Enterprise, to Overton, to Tatum and places like that? What if Christ came to our town? What if Christ came to your home? What would you do different? What if Christ came to our churches? I mean, what would we do if he showed up? And what would he say? And what would he see? And what would he do? Well, we see in this passage that when Christ came to Jerusalem, he didn't like what he saw. <laughs> And he took action as only he could. You see, it was only six days now before the Passover feast. It was a Sunday. The Passover feast was one of the three big Jewish holidays. It was a time whenever they would remember that time that nearly 14 centuries earlier that Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt and God led them out with a high and uplifted hand with power. And, and so it was a time when Jews would come together to worship in Jerusalem, to offer their sacrifices, to celebrate the Passover dinner. And Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem. And it was a very gutsy thing for him to do, at least from our perspective, it was a daring thing to do. You see, the religious officials, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, if you will, they had already made plans to kill Jesus simply because... Too many people were following him and there was nothing that they could do to show that he was a fraud. There was nothing that they could do to stop him. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that council met and they said, we must put him to death. That's what we've got to do. 
And so they began making their plans in earnest. And by the way, they also decided to destroy the evidence of what Jesus did when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They decided they were going to kill Lazarus while they were at it. That was the way that they thought that they could handle all of this. But you see, Jesus wasn't frightened by any of these things. Nobody was going to touch him until his hour came. So on that day that he shows up, on that Sunday before Passover, the city was overflowing with people, Jewish people from all over Judea and Galilee, from everywhere that there was a Jewish community in the Mediterranean areas and wherever it might be, they all had been making their migration to Jerusalem. And so Jesus takes this time in which the city was so crowded to make a very powerful statement. Before they, he and his disciples go into town that day, he tells them to go to the village that's before them. And he said, you are going to find a, a donkey, a young donkey, and he's going to be tied up. You untie him and you bring him over here. And that's exactly what they did. They brought this donkey over there. They took their, the disciples took off their cloaks and they put it on the donkey's back. And then they put Jesus on top of the donkey. And as he started growing, drawing close to Jerusalem, the people came out. Because, listen, let me tell you something. It may be that the religious leaders hated Jesus, but the common folks, by and large, thought that Jesus was the greatest show on earth. They were, they were all for him. And when they saw Jesus coming, they began to come out on the road. And they began to welcome him. Some of them took off their cloaks and spread it out on the road so that the donkey wouldn't even get his feet soiled by the dirt on the road. Others took branches that they brought out of the fields and put it down there to make kind of a bed of leaves and soft branches for the donkey to ride on. And they began shouting. They began shouting and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of our king. In other words, the descendant of David. Because what they were doing was it was just as it was written in Ezekiel, I mean in Zechariah chapter 9, which we read earlier, where in Zechariah it says, Be very glad, O daughter of Zion. Shout for joy, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you, righteous and bringing salvation, humble and riding upon a donkey, the colt, a foal of a donkey. You see, whenever those people were shouting Hosanna, it means to save now or to save us, please. And what they were doing was that they were hailing Jesus as the promised one. He was the Messiah. He was the king that they had been waiting for for years and centuries. He was here. Oh, maybe they didn't understand fully about his kingdom and the nature of his kingdom. Look at it this way. The disciples didn't understand as much as they should have either. If you will look in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it's just before Jesus ascended. He had them all gathered together, and one of them comes up with one of these typical, brilliant apostle remarks. We wouldn't have been any smarter. And they said, Lord, it's now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. They weren't catching on, but at least they knew a little bit. And these people knew a little bit. And he did not correct them. He just let them cheer. You see, his kingdom was not of this world. He told Pilate that, and it probably scared Pilate to death. It ought to scare us. But people were having a little hard time understanding it, but it was okay. And then after arriving, it was starting to get a bit late in the day. Jesus gets off the donkey. He goes into the temple courts. 
He did have something to say about what was going on there, but he decided to save it until Monday morning. And so he and the disciples returned to Bethany. It's only about two miles east of Jerusalem. That was where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And that was probably, they were probably some of his closest friends, and no doubt he was staying with them as long as, and as were the disciples. So, on the next morning, Jesus and the disciples, they set out for Jerusalem again. Now, Jesus, it was morning, and Jesus was walking along, and he was hungry. Evidently, Martha didn't cook a very big breakfast that morning. And so, anyway, so he goes over and he sees this fig tree in, in full foliage. So he goes over there to see if there were some figs on it. And there weren't. And you might say, well, why didn't Jesus use his x-ray vision or something and know what was there? Well, listen, he didn't do that all the time. Remember, Jesus was, all, was not only fully God, but he's also fully man. And he did what any other person would do. It says he got over there and he didn't find any figs on it. Because it wasn't the season for figs. And you say, well, I thought Jesus was even smarter than that. No, understand this. And I am not a horticulturist, but from what I have read about it, these fig trees, when they start putting on leaves, they begin putting on some fruit. At least they do over there in the Middle East. And you should have found something, at least the beginnings of some figs. There was even a thing they referred to as, as, as kind of like socks, and they were called, not socks like you wear, but that was a term they used, and it had to do with some early figs. He should have been able to find some promise there. He should have found some promise of some figs that were there, but there was nothing there but leaves. It looked great from a distance, but whenever you got there, it really wasn't much to see. And then Jesus made a statement that must have sounded a bit odd. He pronounced a curse upon it and said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then he and the, Jesus and the twelve continued on their way to Jerusalem. I would imagine that the disciples were kind of looking at each other after that one. They didn't realize what was going on. But upon arrival, what Jesus does when he gets in there, he heads straight to the temple complex and he finds it there to be a beehive of activity. Foreign money was being exchanged there for Jewish coins to pay the temple tax. In other words, every man had to pay a temple tax. And if you did not live in the area around Judea and what, the money that you had was all foreign money, you had to get that exchanged for an official Jewish coinage because the temple would not accept anything that was foreign money. And so they were exchanging money there to pay the temple tax. There were sheep and goats and doves that were for sale. The sheep and the, or the goats could be used for the Passover meal. Doves and things like that could be used for some other types of sacrifices. Everything that they were selling was something for the temple, something suitable for sacrifices and worship. And when Jesus saw all of that, he did not applaud them. He comes in there and turns upside down the tables of the money changers. He chased the animals out of the temple courts. And he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And you have made it a den of thieves. The temple had come loose from its moorings. Its leaders had lost sight of their purpose. The temple was supposed to be a place where people would come to pray and to worship, but it had become a marketplace, an exchange center. 
People who came to worship were eyed by the religious officials as financial resources, no doubt. How much could we sell them a goat for today? The temple, temple was supposed to be a place where people would come to meet God, and now it had become a den of thieves, a hideout, a place where someone could go and hope that he could hide from God. What Jesus did was shocking. And at the end of the day, the twelve again returned to Bethany. The next morning, Tuesday, Jesus and his apostles head to Jerusalem again. And the disciples noticed that fig tree that Jesus seemed to be angry with the day before. And they noticed that it was withered and dead from the roots up. Simon Peter blurts out, Look, Rabbi! Here's the tree that you cursed yesterday, and it's dead. Well, Jesus used this fig tree to teach a lesson. It was a lesson about prayer, but it was also a lesson about the religion situation in Jerusalem because that fig tree was a picture of the temple in Jerusalem. The fig tree was full of leaves. It gave every indication that it was healthy and vibrant, but that fig tree had no fruit. The temple in Jerusalem appeared to be a model of spiritual activity, but a closer look revealed that it, like the fig tree, had nothing to offer. It was absolutely worthless. It was just taking up space on good ground. No wonder Jesus cleansed that temple because it had become a religious cesspool. Christ's accusation was right to the point. They had turned the house of God and the house of prayer into a bazaar. And it was no longer a place to meet God. Well, as expected, the religious officials decided that they were going to roll up their sleeves and they were going to confront Jesus over what he did the day before. And so they asked him, what authority do you have to do what you just did yesterday? And he answered them with a question. He said, you answer my question and I'll answer yours. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Tell me. And they couldn't answer. Oh, oh, they could. But they weren't going to. Because no matter what they said, it was going to end up being wrong. But just a reminder, don't ever try to debate with Jesus. It never really came out well for the other side, did it? Well, there's lessons that we can learn from this, serious lessons that every church at every phase of its life needs to think about. One of the things is this, is about who Jesus is. Jesus is the king, all right. <laughs> I mean, the people there in Jerusalem hailed him as the king and they were right to do so. He was the king, but his kingdom is not of this world. Now, I'm sure you know this. But we need to be reminded of this. And by the way, I have said things like this from the pulpit before and made some people angry. So if you're angry about it, don't come talking to me about it because I'm not going to listen. But listen, <laughs> Jesus is not a Democrat and he's not a Republican. He's not an independent. He's not a socialist. He's not a Green Party member. He's not any of those types of things. 
The reason is, is because his kingdom goes beyond national boundaries. His kingdom is the entire universe. And he was not voted into his position of authority. And he cannot be voted out of his position of authority for four years. Why? It's because this universe belongs to him. (laughs) He made it. Okay? So, Jesus is the king. And we should never forget that. Let me tell you something. So many times today we try to put all of our hopes in political figures. And I really don't care what person you voted for for president. I really, really don't. But so many times people have put all their hopes in some politician that's going to stay in Washington and save us. The only person that's going to save us is Jesus Christ. There. Like I said, if you don't like that, you know, if you don't like that, talk to Ronnie about it, okay? <laughs> he's, bigger than, he's bigger than I am. Here's another thing about this, is Jesus is the supreme authority in the church. There's more than, there's more than one way to skin a cat, my mother used to say, and there's some people think that there's more than one way to operate a church. And sometimes we can come up with all of our methodologies that are based on a corporate business model, We can choose that or we can choose the way that Christ teaches us to do things. Let me tell you what. The way of Jesus may not always be popular, but if your way conflicts with his way, guess who's wrong? Another thing about Jesus as the king is that he has the right and the ability to judge us and our deeds. He is the one who is described in the book of Revelation as the one whose eyes are like a flaming fire that can see right through you and me and see everything that is going on. Of all the people that we could think of in this world, it's his inspection that we should want to pass. Let us please him more than anyone or any other ideal. He is the king. He has no peer. Some other things that we want, I'd like to just to remind you about. It's kind of like the temple in Jerusalem. Our church should reflect the right things. Our church should never look upon people as prospective donors to the church or as people who can enrich us. Instead, we should look at them as to people to whom we can minister in the name of Jesus Christ. I know, I'm sure I've told you this before. And so this is nap time for you if you've heard it before. But I remember at one church where I served, there was a couple that showed up. And these were just good-hearted, poor, hill country people. I mean, they were. And they weren't much to look at. They're probably very rudely educated. But I believe they loved the Lord. And they loved to come to church. And I remember one guy, he's kind of hoity-toity, and he said, well, I don't really think those are our kind of people. And I think I said, well, what are our kind of people? And the thing was, was that he was looking at them this way. There they were driving this old junker car, like, you know, a 1952 DeSoto with wheels about to fall off. And, And he was looking at them as, how can they enrich our church? How are they gonna make us look better? 
How are they going to add a little extra money to the offering plate? And that's really not what it's about. We should never do that. Is that we should never look to see what people can do for us with their money. And that was one of the problems at the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, you know, you come here, you buy our goats, you buy our sheep, you buy our doves, you, you go to our exchange table so we can make some money off of you. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. We should also make our church a place of prayer. What thing can we do, what, in, what activity can we engage in as a body of believers that is more important than prayer? I know that we say this so often that we almost turn blue in the face, but whenever you look in Acts, the early chapters of Acts, what were they doing whenever they didn't have other things to do? I'll tell you what they were doing. They were praying before they chose the first deacons. They prayed. Whenever they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, they prayed. They prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and that was just a part of the life of the church, and it ought to be a part of the life of every church that you go to. We should not beg people to pray. It should be something that we should be telling people, won't you shut up for a little bit and let me preach? You know, it, This is the way it's supposed to be. We are supposed to be a praying people. If the temple was supposed to be a place of prayer for all people, we as a body of believers, in a sense, are a temple. And it, this ought to be a place where prayers are lifted up. And we really need that right now. We'll talk a little bit more about it just after I get through the sermon. But... The thing that we can do right now as far as our church and looking up for a permanent pastor, we ought to be praying constantly that God would lead the right person here. And that we're not going to be looking for the wrong things, but we're going to be looking for things that go along with the standards that Jesus Christ sets forth. Another thing is our church ought to be a holy place of worship. Once again, this is a little bit of my opinion. And, and, I, and I will say, if I am wrong, I'll be glad for you to correct me. I, I know I'm a bit old-fashioned in the way that I think. But I remember going to church whenever I was a little boy. And uh, we would, uh, and we had the old green Broadman hymnal. Some of you, rem yeah, you remember, yeah. And there was one hymn in there that the, the choir sang every morning whenever they filed in. And it was, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And it was silent after they got through. I know whenever I was a kid, we were always told not to run in God's house and not to scream and holler and yell in God's house and all that. And I really couldn't understand that. I thought, well, maybe God would like to have some fun too. You know, we were having fun. And we really weren't trying to do anything blasphemous. And I don't think children are when they do that. But sometimes I think that we see that in some churches, I will say, I don't think I've seen it here, where people come together and they expect to be entertained. And they use all the things that entertainers use. And sometimes the whole meeting is focused upon the entertainment value, and it does not focus upon the greatness of Jesus Christ. Understand, when we come together, this ought to be a holy time. Now, another thing is, is that our church ought to be a place where we come to draw near to God and not hide from him. When Jesus said, you have made this a den of thieves, he was quoting from Jeremiah. And what, he was, what is meant by this 
is that it was not just a lodging place for thieves. It was a place where thieves would go to hide, is what Jeremiah was talking about. And believe it or not, church can become a place to hide and hide from God. That's what the Jewish religious leaders were doing. They had all their fancy clothes and all their accoutrements and they had all their titles and things like that. And they would show up and it would look like that they were so good and they were so righteous and they were so godly and they were so everything that you could expect a religious person to be that no one could ever see that they were actually rotten on the inside. They had made their religion a way to get away from God instead of come to him. And that's what we have to be so careful of. Folks, just because we show up at church on Sunday morning with a Bible in our hand does not mean that we have come to church in order to draw near. We may be hiding behind that Bible. And don't ever let that happen. You know, there's another little thing that we see in here about Jesus and his power and authority. Is that Jesus has the authority and the power to sustain a church or to remove its lampstand. Whenever I was a boy, there was a, a young teenager, the church that we went to, we had a preacher that he was, he was half American Indian. He was really tall, especially for uh, someone who was a Native American. He was tall and he was lean and gaunt looking. And man, he could just about, you know, put out the fires of hell with some of his sermons. He was, he was pretty, pretty rank. Anyway, he was coming down hard on the congregation that morning. And he was coming from that text about where Jesus threatened to remove the lampstand from the church. And he said, and he can remove the lampstand from this church. If he hasn't done it already. <laughs> I never could forget that one. But you know something? What he said was true, wasn't it? And it would apply to any congregation. So let us ask this question. What if Christ came to our church? Would he be pleased with what he found? God help us if he's not. Let's pray. Oh, our Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we can see Jesus for all that he is and that you would place in our hearts a hunger to be all that we can be for him. So much so that if he were to come here and walk in through the back door, he would say, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful in a few things. I'm going to make you the ruler over any. Lord, we pray that you would do that. Give us that burning desire. Give us that thirst to be all that we can be for you. Lord, let us see your hand at work among us. And we pray not only for ourselves in a greedy sense, but we pray that your name will be lifted up in every church in this area. Lord, so that your kingdom will be seen uh, growing and reaching out and bringing glory to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.